I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 18, as we continue our study that we began a couple weeks back in the Passion narrative of John's Gospel that we find in chapters 18 and chapters 19. And this morning we're going to move from the garden setting that we were in last week and our Lord's interactions with the party that came to arrest him. And um, we're going to look now at the arrest itself. I'm going to call that the binding of Jesus. And then we're going to go to where Jesus is brought, which is in the um, household of the priests, and uh, particularly he's going to be brought before uh, the priest named Annas. And so... We're going to go from Jesus being bound to Jesus being brought now to Annas. And then finally, we're going to see how Simon Peter fits into this whole picture as he is mentioned in a very intimate context of the whole uh, intimate relationship to this whole context which we're really told that uh, Peter followed Jesus so from Jesus being bound to his being brought to Annas to what is also going on at the same time contemporaneously or simultaneously with the things that are happening to Jesus we will look at Peter following Jesus and just how well he did in following him and you see two different meanings to following. So anyway, let's begin. Let's begin, first of all, with the arrest itself. Jesus being bound, which is the principal thing I want to bring out of the account of the arrest. The arrest is described in an economy of words. In um, the words of um, verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. As we saw last week, it does seem that John wants us to understand this binding of Jesus, this arrest of Jesus, this bringing of Jesus to the religious authorities was not just a Jewish affair, but there were Romans also involved in it. Just exactly how that played out, it's a little bit difficult to know for sure where Judas got this large group of band of soldiers, as it's called, a captain of the soldiers, but they were present. John tells us, along with the officers of the Jews. And they arrest Jesus and they bind Jesus. Now Mark adds to the scene that they simply laid hands on him and they seized him. So it's a violent sort of uh, activity in the verbs that he uses, laying hands on Jesus and seizing Jesus. Remember, this is the group that had simply fallen back. You might think they would not have been aggressive. There wouldn't have been aggression in the things that they did, but apparently there was still aggression in seizing him, laying hands on him, and then binding him. And then we're told in Mark's Gospel, they all left him and fled. We're not exactly told in John's Gospel, they all left him and fled, but they did. They went to their homes, that was Jesus' concern for them, that they would not be in harm's way. And I also think that in their fleeing, we should really rid our minds of the thought, here's a bunch of weak disciples in their fear, that just abandoned Jesus at a low moment. No, this was a confused lot of people. 
just at a loss to know why it was that Jesus did what he did. Why did he give in? Why did he give up without even a fight? They were all primed for a fight. But the one who was to lead them into battle says, no, I'm not going to battle. In fact, when one took a sword and cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus says, put, sheathe your sword. And he heals the ear of the man. Matthew uh, has the same basic statement, the same arrangement of facts. He seems to just replicate what Mark has. Luke has it a little bit different. He has a little bit different order as well of the events, as we'll see. He has, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He adds that statement. This is your hour and the power of darkness. That's interesting. Because in John's Gospel, um, this was Jesus' hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You read in chapter 12 and verse 23. And so what in John's Gospel is the hour of the Son's glory is in Luke. The hour of the power of darkness is shame. Their shame, their disgrace, their wicked, evil, self-absorbed, wretched hearts are on full display and what they did to the Son of God. That light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. And yet we take heart in the knowledge. That what they meant for evil. God means for good. What they do for their shame. God does for the glory of his name. And the glory of his own dear son. And then Luke adds. They seized him and led him away. Bringing him to the high priest's house. John alone actually states that in the arrest, Jesus was bound. He was tied up. The others just say he was taken into custody. But clearly he wasn't free to act at this point and from this point forward. Now he had the power to deliver himself from their hands, but he placed himself in their hands, and now he is compelled to do exactly what they desire. John says this was a binding we're not told what was bound. Was it his hands that were bound? Today when someone's arrested, usually they're just put into handcuffs. Uh, but Jesus is probably bound by ropes or chains, maybe his arms as well, bound to his body. And then he's led away. I think it's significant, we're told, that there was this binding of Jesus. Because of a number of factors we read later in John, but also I think what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. We were told that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We're told we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Seems like Hebrews 2 and 4 is telling us that Jesus experiences human life in the flesh that enables him to relate to those for whom he's come to save. has to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's able to understand the human condition. The human condition in its great diversity and all of its variables. It's one of the sad realities of the ancient world, even in the modern world in some places, even still today, that part of what is found in the human condition is human bondage. Is people being put into captivity, placed into slavery, unable to exercise their own agency 
being controlled by others from the time they, they wake up in the morning to the time that they go to bed at night. And the thing we're told about the gospel, we're told that when Jesus went into the synagogue to read from the gospel, the uh, prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4, as he read, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, for the Lord has anointed me to what, free the captives. Free the captives. That's one of the things the Son of God has come to do. And so he who comes to free the captives, at least at this point, becomes a captive. Becomes a captive. Now when he tells us in Matthew 24, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. He's not only describing the condition of his brethren that required the ministry of the faithful, but he's also describing conditions he himself knew well. Jesus knew what it was to thirst. Look at him at the well at Jacob in John chapter 4. He knew what it was not to have a place to lay his head. He knew what it was not to be welcomed, to be a stranger, and simply not to be welcomed. There's a Samaritan city that Luke tells us about. And the disciples say, should we be to Elijah, command that, that, that fire come down and destroy these people? Jesus knew what it was to experience the human condition from the inside. He also says, I was a prisoner and you visited me. That's in that list of things Jesus says was true of him. Now, again, he's talking about how his brothers, experiencing those things, are served and ministered to by others because we love Jesus. We serve Jesus in the serving of his people. But the point is still that Jesus comes to save the prisoners. He comes to liberate the captives. He comes to free the slaves. no wonder that soon after the Civil War it was a collection I think the Methodist Church put together a collection of songs that were entitled Slave Songs of the United States The Slave Songs of the United States It was put together in 1867 by the Methodist Church Today we call them Negro Spirituals or we used to call them that Perhaps the most well-known of those slave songs was the song, Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Jesus surely was the friend of slaves, sympathizing with them in their bonds, having himself been bound. He was their helper. He was their comfort. He was their savior. He was their sympathetic high priest. Every believing slave may have had the lash of their masters. They may have had disrespect and disregard of all the culture around them, but they had the love of Christ. They had the favor of Jesus. Later on in John's Gospel, we're going to look at it a bit later, Peter's going to be told there's a time when he too will be bound. He too will not have agency over where he goes and what he does. 
He will be taken into captivity and he will be brought where others want him to go and to do what others want him to do. And we're told that Jesus spoke those words to tell him by what manner of death he would glorify God. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God as he's taken into captivity, bound. We're told that when you were young, you used to dress yourself. You used to walk wherever you wanted. This is in chapter 21 and verse 18. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You will be a prisoner. You will be a captive. You will be bound. And he said, this is the death by which Peter will glorify God. Now this binding of Jesus is so that they could take him readily, easily, where they wanted Jesus to go. And where did they want him to go? Well, first stop was the high priest. The home of the high priest. Again, look at the passage. So the band of soldiers and their captains and their officers of the Jews arrested him and bound him and then were told first they led him to Annas for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year and this this perplexes many of the commentators as to why it is that we're not told about Annas and the other gospels we're told that Jesus was brought in he was first of all belittled and he was mocked and he was smitten by the soldiers and then he was finally brought to Caiaphas Caiaphas was the high priest and certainly John knows that he goes and he tells us in the words of um, verse 24 then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest so in verse 24 we're told Jesus ultimately is brought to Caiaphas but not first see the language first first and it's interesting John says first but there's no second there's no third it's not a series of things that the soldiers do to him they just bring him first to Annas and I rather think what John's saying is uh, you guys know what Matthew's gospel says you know that Jesus was sent to Caiaphas but there's something maybe you don't know and that's first he was brought to Annas Now, Caiaphas, we're told, was the high priest that year. But Annas was his father-in-law, and it wasn't just that he was his father-in-law, but Annas also had been the priest. He'd been the priest in Jerusalem at the temple from 6 AD to about 15 AD, about 10 years period of time that he functioned as high priest. And then he had five of his six sons serve in the high priesthood at various times after him and then Caiaphas was the priest and that was his son-in-law he was married to one of Annas' daughters and he was high priest for some 18 years and apparently because he was always in the favor of the Roman authorities he thrived well he wasn't just a priest for a brief time he was a priest for the longest time of any of the priests of that period for a period of 18 years whereas John says he was priest that year the year in which Jesus was crucified and he came Jesus ultimately comes before Caiaphas for the official trial that was along with the other leaders probably the Sanhedrin convened at the home of the high priest 
But first, first, before you get to Caiaphas, before you get to the Sanhedrin, before you get to the official trial, Jesus is brought before this man Annas, who was really the, the patriarch of a high priestly family. Why does John omit Caiaphas? He doesn't even include it. I think it's because he knows you know it, if you've read Matthew. Why does he include Annas? Well, we don't know. But I would think that as you read the proceedings of what happened before Caiaphas, it really is of a different a different spirit than what you find in the probably not a trial, official trial, but an interrogation at least, before Annas. What happened under Caiaphas was a simple miscarriage of justice. They're all conspiring together how they might put this guy to death. And we know from John's 11 that Caiaphas had already made up his mind about this whole matter. He's the one that advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one should die for the people, not the whole nation. Of course, that was, as John sees it, as a prophecy of what Jesus would do in his death and gathering all nations to himself. But Caiaphas was, it was a kangaroo court. There wasn't a fair trial. There was nothing proper about what went on. One of the rules of Jewish trials is that it should be in the daytime. This was not daytime. This was at night. They suborned perjury. They looked to bring people in that would lie, tell stories. And then finally somebody comes in and says, well, this guy said he's going to destroy the temple made with hands and raise up a temple not made with hands in three days. And yet even there we're told they couldn't agree with one another about what the story was that they were trying to tell. Certainly Jesus said something about that, but not the way they said it. It was just simply they were looking for causes against them, looking for something by which they would carry out their own predetermined desire to put him to death. It does seem to be that, before Annas at least, we find honest questions. Look at the words of verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I don't think you have anything like that with Annas, with, with Caiaphas. Here there seemed to be some legitimate desire to know. That may be the reason that John says, you've heard about Caiaphas, and really when you come down to it, you know enough. You know enough. You know enough about what that guy's about. But there was another priest that at least appeared, at least on the surface of things, uh, to have some questions that he raised. And then he sends them off to Caiaphas. But you see, I think ultimately, the reason this matter of Annas comes in is that it enables John to use a little bit of a sort of a rhetorical device or a literary device. It's a way in which he could highlight or draw attention or put the spotlight on the fact that what was happening within the walls of the high priest's house had a contemporaneous or simultaneous event transpiring at that very time outside. Outside. Outside, something was going on in the courtroom, in the courtyard, in the courtyard. While Jesus is being interrogated inside by Annas, Peter is being interrogated outside. 
So you move from Jesus being bound, taken to Annas first, to the fact that Peter followed. Peter followed. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. John records the denial of Peter. He records the denial of Peter in a most unusual way. He records it in a singular way that is not followed by the other gospel writers. Matthew and Mark present the denial of Peter in a single narrative. And both of those writers place it prior to the trial before Caiaphas. Peter's denials come first. We're told that Peter followed Jesus at a considerable distance. He comes then into the courtyard of the high priest. He warms himself at the fire. And at that time, the trial before Caiaphas um, and the Sanhedrin is, uh, is recorded. Only when Jesus is, I'm sorry, I think it comes afterwards. I think it comes afterwards. Go look it up. You'll see. Matthew and Mark have one order. Luke has another order. But it's separate. It's separate from the trial. Only when Jesus is finally condemned before the Jewish court does is Peter's three denials come into, into view. What does John do? Well, first of all, he tells us of Peter's first denial in verse 15 to verse 18. You see it? You have the servant girl in verse 17 at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it's cold and they were standing and warming themselves Peter also is with them standing and warming himself and now you move back into the interior of the high priest's house in verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching and only after verse 24 Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the priest do now go back outside again go back outside to Simon Peter was standing and warming himself that's where we left him in verse 18. Now verse 25, he's standing, warming himself. So he said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. So denial 2 and 3 comes after Jesus' interrogation before Annas. So what's the significance of that? Well, again, when you have things like this happening, a lot of times in Mark's Gospel, something like this where you have a scene, and then you have another event, and then you're back to the first scene, it's called in Mark's Gospel, you remember that? What we called a Mark and Sandwich? I didn't make that up. Someone else made it up. Is that you have two slices of bread on either end, and then you have something happening in the middle. And the idea of this Mark and Sandwich thing, this uh, literary device, you start one place, you move into another thing, and then you come back to the thing you began with, is so that the events on either side should be viewed in the light of the thing that happened in the middle. But what happened in the middle? Jesus is being interrogated. What happened on the ends? 
Peter is being interrogated. Now at this point we don't have time to do justice to an extensive comparison and contrast to come to all the conclusions that could be drawn from this. But I think the point that we need to see is that you have interrogations on both party. Jesus being interrogated by Annas, Simon Peter being interrogated by servants outside. And though John doesn't tell us this, the other Gospels that John owes you're familiar with will tell, tell you that Peter just didn't simply deny that he was one of Jesus' disciples. He did it with anger. He did it with cursing. He did it with swearing. He did it with bitterness of heart. With derisive comments. He folded into a completely carnal, self-absorbed person just spewing out his frustrations, spewing out his anger. What did Jesus do? What a contrast. He came and he spoke truth. He spoke with dignity. He spoke with patience. He spoke with respect. He spoke as much as he did speak as one who is said to be like a lamb sent to the slaughter, silent before his accusers for the most part, and yet he did not speak with wrath. He did not speak in any way with the kind of bitterness and the kind of cursing and swearing. You see the contrast? Peter is said to have followed Jesus from a distance. And indeed, it was from a great distance. He was following Jesus because he wasn't doing what Jesus did at all. You know, following our Lord, in terms of how John presents it in the Gospel, is to follow him in the way of doing what he does. How do you follow somebody? If I was to tell you to follow me home, how would you do it? I hope you'd follow see what I was doing. I got into my car, you get into your car. I will go out to the road, I take a left, you take a left. I go up the road, past the park, you'd come going past the park. That's how you would follow. You do what the one who's leading you is doing. Peter's doing the exact opposite. He was outside the priest's house, a rebellious warrior seeking to fight to the death in the interest of his very false and dangerous views of what God's kingdom was to be. What happened to Peter? He saw what Jesus did. And Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to do likewise. There's going to come a time in your old age when you too will be bound, when you too will be going in places you don't want to go. Peter's told by what kind of death he will glorify God. And you know what Peter does in his first letter? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is an apostle who has seen Jesus in his patient suffering. Has seen Jesus in the way he went to the cross. and the way he went as a lamb to the slaughter. Peter now knows this is the way that all believers are to walk. This is what all believers are to do. And this is what he himself is preparing himself to do as one who is being told by the Lord himself what manner of death he is called 
to glorify God. Verse 18, be su- uh, this is second Pe- First Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Not only to the Annases, but also to the Caiaphases. Not only to those people that are going to be the kind of people in, in government over you or control over you that you like, but even those that won't. He says, for this is a gracious thing. This is where grace comes in. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Being mindful of God, it's a gracious thing. When God comes and meets us in the midst of our afflictions and we're mindful of His presence, we're mindful of His will, we're mindful of His ways as we see them revealed in Christ, we endure under the suffering. We endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, for what credit is it? And the word I believe that's used there is the same word for grace. What grace is it? What grace is it? Can you see this is gracious? When if you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? Yes, I got what I deserved. I was a fool and I got the fool's reward. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace. This is grace. Suffering unjustly. It's It's grace in the sight of God. And then Peter says, for to this you have been called. This is your calling, Christian. This is how you to react in the place of suffering. It's not to say, well, this is not right. We need to form political parties. We need to form political action committees. We need to form political groups that will bring us back to a place of power. So the Christian way is the way that the government runs and everybody else will have to be subject to us. That's actually the mentality of what's called Christian nationalism today. That's not the view of Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. And he didn't arm his people for rebellion. He didn't arm his people to carry out a whole-scale rebellion. This king would come to to his throne, would come to his crown, by way of suffering, by the way of humbling himself unto obedience, unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God highly exalted him, and gave him a name that's above every name. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. What does it mean to follow in the steps of Jesus? Not only in the steps of his moral instruction and teaching, but also in the way that he lived and the way that he died. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he cursed and swore in bitterness and in anger. No, that's what Peter did. That's not what Jesus did. John's setting up that contrast that we should learn not to follow Jesus from a distance, but to follow Jesus in obedience. To follow Jesus in walking in the pathway that he walked in. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, not his own sins. He bore the sins of others in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
See, this is the one who came to triumph through weakness. He came to the throne by way of the cross. And we too have been called to to suffer that we might be glorified. Apostle Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. He says in that very context that we are called to be co-heirs with Christ if we suffer also with him. We're called to be conformed not only to the power of his resurrection, but to the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed unto his death. Now, that's not to say we look to suffer. It's not to say that if we could avoid suffering in a legitimate, godly way, that you shouldn't. It's not to have a martyr's complex. It's not to say, world, just dump on us as Christians, and we'll be in the format over which you walk. No, it's not to say that at all. But it is to say that God's people in this world will be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so don't be surprised. And don't think everything is a point where you fight. I keep meaning to read a book that uh, it was one of those Ortland guys, uh, one of the sons of uh, Ray Ortland. Um, his couple sons in the ministry, and they both write books. And I think I've been told the books are really good. And one of them, just the title, I just want to read this book just because of the title, but I haven't yet. And it's called "Which Hills to Fight On." Which are the hills you're to fight on? Or, I'm sorry, which hill to die on? That's what it is. You know, there's lots of hills you think you're going to fight the fight and you think it's a good fight, but it's not the hill to worth, worth dying on. It's not a hill worth dying on. I remember sitting with a pastor on his porch one evening when he was telling me what he's planned to do with reference to what he thought were bad things that were happening in his congregation. And I simply looked at him and I said, do you really want to die on this hill? Is this the thing you want to make such a crucial matter about? That you're going to make this the principal point of a, of a war? To declare war against your own people? Oh, but righteousness says. Oh, yeah, okay, righteousness says. Foolishness also has its voice in some of these things. It's just not the place of wisdom. The man ended up destroying a church as a result of his own willfulness not to be a patient sufferer, not to leave the matter in the hands of God. Just to think, I'm the, I'm the boss around here. I'm the head guy. Everybody has to knuckle under to my will. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not please himself. He went to the cross and he died for us. He was wounded and scourged and mocked for us. And we will do anything just to avoid any kind of discomfort or suffering. Or even anybody think we're wrong about anything. Everything's a war. Everything's something we have to fight over. Peter learned his lesson, didn't he? I think it's a lesson that, is, that marks his letters, that marks his life post-resurrection. He could say to his readers, when I was outside in the courtyard, when Jesus was inside being interrogated by the high priest, I lied, I cursed, I threatened, I boiled over with anger and enmity. But my Lord did not do that. He committed no sin. 
Neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now Peter may not have denied Jesus through cowardice or weakness, but his bravery and strength was anything but righteous. Jesus puts on full display what righteous suffering requires. It's what he did inside the house of the high priest. While outside, Peter did the exact opposite. And Jesus' final word to Peter in John's gospel was that the place where he was inside, Peter would soon find himself there. When you're old, you're not going to be able to go where you want to go like you did when you were young. Peter, Peter, in the narrative of Jesus' arrest and trial before Annas, or interrogation before Annas, we're told he followed Jesus at a distance. He followed Jesus a long way off. And I don't think that's just to be understood in terms of his physical proximity to the Lord. He was way, way, way off. In terms of what the Lord did and what the Lord required of him. But eventually, Peter would follow Jesus in a very close resemblance to Jesus' own life and Jesus' own death. So my prayer to God, we'd all likewise learn to follow Jesus as closely. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its instruction. We're thankful for even the mistakes that men like Peter have made, where they've learned through their folly lessons of your grace that stood them in good stead in the ensuing years. Lord, we've, made all, we've all made mistakes. We've all been guilty of horrific follies in terms of what we thought were things you required us to do, only to see that we were just filled with self-will. We were filled with carnal ambition. We were filled with this, our own ignorance. And we're thankful that you do not cast us off. We're thankful that like Peter, we receive forgiveness, time without number. And we're thankful that you work in our lives through your grace and through your spirit so that more and more we can be like Jesus. We can live our lives and even die our deaths in a way that is like him, following in his steps. Again, not being bitter, not being self-willed, not being angry, but being concerned to commit ourselves, our souls, our beings into the hands of the God who judges righteously. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your word. We ask you to give us grace as we come to the supper this morning to remember our Lord Jesus with faith and faithfulness. We'd ask in his name. Amen.